I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the press, politics, and public policy. What you just saw here was a New York Times reunion. <laughs> They're all over the place. Uh, New York Times. I'm very, very glad to uh, welcome my friend and colleague uh, Gretchen Morganson, who is the, in my opinion, best financial reporter in America. She uh, had the distinction during the dot-com bubble phase to be singled out for ridicule by CNBC for daring to do story after story saying that this was all a bubble and was about to burst. Um, she does something because of her own background in the financial world uh, outside being a journalist before she became a journalist. She's sort of like a do medical doctor who becomes a journalist. It's, it's someone who sees this financial world from the inside and it's allowed her to do something that no other or very few other financial journalists do, and which is very, very hard to do and very, very risky to do in many respects. She tries to look around the corner and see what's happening. And what that often means is that she writes articles that say that the emperor has no clothes, <laughs> which is something very unwelcome in the corporate world. And I think that when you read Gretchen's work in the New York Times, what you are getting is not just good reporting, but a savvy and understanding of the way this world actually works and a willingness to go out on a limb and say that the emperor has no clothes, which you have repeatedly, and seems, she actually seems to enjoy it very much. <laughs> uh, Gretchen, we're very glad to have you, and uh, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Alex. That's a way too generous a uh, introduction, and you know, I also, it's, it's not so dangerous what I do because, of course, I have a wonderful New York Times behind me. And as I sometimes say to Arthur Salzberger, thank you for allowing me, allowing me the courage of my convictions, and you have to take them on, too. So, um, anyway, it's a wonderful perch to have to sit in my spot at the New York Times. I joined the paper in 1998. In May, I had been at Forbes for a long time and had learned a lot there about how to be a dogged business reporter, <coughs> really digging and getting the goods. And <coughs> Forbes is unfortunately a shadow of its former self now, but uh, while I was there, it was a great um, place to learn. And so, but I joined the paper in 98, it was May. Almost immediately, the long-term capital management crisis erupted. Then it was the dot-com bubble. And it, it, it really has been sort of nothing but scandal since 1998. And while I did not set out to be kind of the scandal reporter, that is, in fact, sort of what I've had to cover and have had to understand all these years. We do seem to have a lot more uh, scandals a lot more regularly than we used to. <coughs> so, knowing a little bit about Wall Street and the way Wall Street works has really been super helpful to me because, especially this last time around, everything became so much more complicated than it had been before. And a lot of the securities that Wall Street created were really confounding. <coughs> I think they were designed to confound. And so, here we had, I had, I felt, a little bit of a leg up over some other reporters about how to understand this stuff. <coughs> but today, um, Alex wanted me to talk about Dodd-Frank, which, of course, was the big 
pivotal legislation passed last summer um, that was meant to reform Wall Street and protect consumers. And so along this legislation came after a lot of wrangling, and I'm sure a lot of you followed it day by day. It's approximately 1,500 pages long, and it had this unwieldy, if hopeful, title, the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. <coughs> Lawmakers, I think, gave it that name for a very good reason, because we had just lived through a mess where Wall Street was riddled with corruption, and there was an almost unfathomable, unfathomable fleecing of consumers and borrowers by the real estate and financial industrial complex. But my takeaway, I haven't read every word of the 1,500 pages, <laughs> but my takeaway is that if anybody thinks that this legislation is really going to live up to its name, reforming Wall Street, protecting <coughs> consumers, they're wrong. I think this is an encyclopedic piece of legislation, there's no doubt. But even so, it's riddled with loopholes, and it's got so much wiggle room a truck could drive through it. So what was described as perhaps the most sweeping financial legislation since the Great Depression, I think is a complex and deeply flawed law that does very little to eliminate the largest problems that have arisen in world markets. Now, the failings of this huge law are even more perplexing when we go <coughs> back in time and recall that Glass-Steagall was 32 pages long. And that legislation really protected consumers from uh, banking abuses pretty well for about 70 years until it was abolished in 1999 by Congress. And that's infinite wisdom. So if you set Dodd-Frank against Glass-Steagall, I'm afraid that less is indeed more. Uh, there are, of course, good aspects to the 2010 <coughs> law. For example, it does force the very secretive Federal Reserve to reveal a lot more about its operations. <coughs> For instance, it has to disclose who visits the discount window, uh, although much later, uh, two years after the fact, but that's still very important for uh, the taxpayers to understand. Uh, I think the law already has done a good job in cutting out some of the abusive fees involved when you get a mortgage. This would reduce borrowers' costs ultimately, and these were, there were a lot of junk fees associated with these loans. But they were buried in the fine print and people had a hard time recognizing them. Well, some of those have gone by the boards as a result of Dodd-Frank. Finally, uh, I think Dodd-Frank did a, a good job in mandating that derivatives, such as credit default swaps, have to be traded more transparently on exchanges or clearinghouses. And that shines some light on what had been a very dark and extremely profitable corner for Wall Street. But I think the law's shortcomings are quite severe. And what I'd like to do today is discuss three key areas where I think Dodd-Frank just does not live up to the lofty goals that its full 
and formal name <coughs> imply. The first of its lapses comes in its really comprehensive delegation of duties <coughs> to regulators. Back in the old days, in the Depression, for example, lawmakers actually wrote legislation designed to protect investors and consumers. They themselves identified the problems, and they themselves came up with the solutions. Not so with Dodd-Frank. It assigned to regulators a great deal of the responsibility to reform Wall Street and protect consumers. Uh, indeed, the law required regulators to create 243 new rules, conduct 67 studies, and issue 22 periodic reports. Now, of course, there was an argument that assigning these uh, duties to regulators was smart. These were the people who the Securities and Exchange Commission, Commodities uh, Futures Trading Corporation, they understand the business that they're overseeing. Isn't that a good idea to let them write the rules? But I think that that might sound reasonable, but to me it's problematic for three reasons. First, I think it's a dereliction of duty by lawmakers. And, an, and it's evidence of an increasing trend among uh, Congress to sort of shrug off the nuts and bolts work, the really heavy lifting that's supposed to be their job. I don't know for fear of political backlash or what, but uh, that is supposed to be what they are doing, and yet they have shuffled <coughs> it off to um, appointed, not elected, officials. Uh, the second problem is that it delegates the crucial task of solving financial industry problems to some of the same people who failed to see them when they were staring them in the face the regulatory agencies that fell down on the job, the SEC, the comptroller of the currency, the Federal Reserve, all of whom really pretty much snoozed their way through the mortgage crisis. So I would like to ask the question, why would any taxpayer believe that these people who are charged with doing the pivotal work of Dodd-Frank will perform any more ably than they did in the years leading up to the mania. But even more sinister, this delegation to regulators of designing Dodd-Frank's mechanical workings provides financial services companies <coughs> and their lobbyists yet another chance to influence the law's final outcome. Even as we speak, regulators are being sweet-talked, pummeled, manipulated, importuned by lobbyists to write the rules in a way that favors them <coughs> and their big bank clients. As a result, these powerful institutions, some of the same ones that drove us into the ditch, I need not add, are getting a second chance to formulate the very laws that they're going to have to abide by under Dodd-Frank. Essentially, they're getting two bites of the Dodd-Frank apple. Here's an example on the important business of swaps trading, in which Dodd-Frank was supposed to ensure that all such instruments trade in the full light of day. The law created a huge loophole. It gave the Treasury Secretary the right to determine whether foreign exchange swaps could be exempt from these requirements. 
Now, $4 trillion of these instruments change hands every day, so we're talking some real money. I need not tell you how assiduously the big banks, who profit mightily from trading these instruments, have been swarming the Treasury Department, trying to ensure that Tim Geithner make the move that they prefer. Between November 2010 and last January, Treasury officials met with 34 representatives of large financial institutions on the subject of foreign exchange swaps. During that time, Treasury officials met just once with a representative of the public who argued that these swaps should indeed be traded on exchanges or clearinghouses. <coughs> now, Mr. Geithner has not made up his mind yet. It'll be interesting to see uh, which side he comes down on on this. But if he sides with the banks, then a big part of Dodd-Frank's claim to protecting investors will have been severely undermined. That's just one area where the delegation of the inner workings of Dodd-Frank has been assigned to regulatory officials. There are literally hundreds of others that are being hammered out daily, and unfortunately, we journalists in the financial media just cannot cover them all. So a lot of this goes completely undiscussed and uncovered. Now the second area where Dodd-Frank fell down, I believe, was in its complete avoidance of how to resolve the disasters known as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, our biggest mortgage zombies. Already these two giants have cost taxpayers $153 billion and the tab will continue to grow. There are estimates of as much as $363 billion. No one knows yet how much it will ultimately cost to have rescued these companies in September of 2008. Uh, Treasury officials, you often see boasting about uh, how much money they're making on the TARP program, for instance, when banks repay their TARP money, but these same officials are silent on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for good reason. Clearly, it's crucial to resolve these two companies that are propping up the nation's mortgage market right now. And yet, Dodd-Frank refused to take them on. Now, I know they're political hot potatoes, but Perhaps this isn't surprising given that, that you might recall both men whose names are on the bill were key and vocal defenders of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac almost until they flamed out in 08. Still, I think that such an avoidance technique is questionable conduct by our leaders. I know that Fannie and Freddie and resolving them, that's topic A this year. It will be discussed in the coming months uh, ad infinitum. What will the future look like without these two um, mortgage finance giants really helping to keep the mortgage market running? But the fact that the most sweeping financial legislation of 70 years was silent on these two agencies, I think, speaks volumes about how sweeping the legislation wasn't. Now, the third missing feature of Dodd-Frank is, I think, it's most glaring and crucial. And that is, the law did nothing to eliminate the threat of institutions that are too big and politically powerful and <coughs> interconnected to be allowed to fail. Even though the existence and clout of such institutions 
was directly responsible for the financial panic of 2008 and its attendant economic woes, Too Big to Fail is alive and well in America, thanks to Dodd-Frank. According to a recent Bloomberg article, the largest U.S. banks have grown even larger since the financial crisis. Too Big to Fail banks will increase by 40% in size over the next 15 years, Bloomberg said. <coughs> That's because Dodd-Frank may bar the nation's biggest banks from merging with each other, but it does not stop the institutions from growing in other ways. The banking sector is already a big growth industry. It's grown seven times faster than gross domestic product since the beginning of the financial crisis, Bloomberg said. <coughs> Today, the top 10 banks in the U.S. hold 77% of all U.S. bank assets, with, compared with 55% of the total before the crisis. This increase has also outpaced inflation in every decade since the 1930s, when total assets in the banking system <coughs> were first collected. Tom Honig, the president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank, is among the very few policymakers who is willing to speak out about the continuing problem of too-big-to-fail institutions. In a speech six weeks ago, he said that the existence of these institutions poses the greatest risk to the U.S. economy, <coughs> and noted that incentives for risk-taking have not been curbed at all. He also said that the regulatory factors that helped to create the crisis remain firmly in place. Mr. Honig advocates breaking up the big institution. But that is a message you will hear neither in Washington or on Wall Street. Dodd-Frank also supplies another loophole that will allow even the largest banks to buy troubled institutions, but only in times of crisis. This increases their size and peril, of course. A section of the law lets large institutions, even those that are subject to its limits on concentration of assets, lets them buy failing banks if, regulatory, uh, if regulators approve these deals. Again, in a time of crisis, it's hard to imagine that a regulator would say no to such an acquisition. Perhaps even more surprising, Dodd-Frank created a new set of institutions that will almost certainly be deemed too important to fail if they get into trouble. That means there won't really be an effective way to keep those firms from taking big, profitable, short-term risks that are then dumped on the taxpayer when they go wrong. Topping this list of new bailout candidates are the derivatives clearinghouses, created to increase the oversight of trading in derivatives instruments, a good thing. Um, but because most of these transactions are expected to go through clearinghouses, they will be considered and are considered under the law systemically important institutions. What that means is that in <coughs> unusual or exigent circumstances, the Federal Reserve can provide a backstop for these institutions. Hmm. Trillions of dollars trade uh, will be trading on these. 
uh, 3.5 trillion in derivatives uh, market credit exposures in 2010 tells you a little bit of an idea, gives you an idea how big these markets will be. And if we're talking about backstops for these markets, that's a lot of dough. Another thing the taxpayer might have to worry about paying for. Uh, another disappointing aspect of the Dodd-Frank law is that it conferred special status on institutions that are seen as systemically important. The process to resolve big bank failures, for instance, is of course targeted to big banks. Smaller institutions don't get this special treatment. They will be allowed to go bankrupt without any resolution authority and regulatory involvement. Now you can understand why they tried to put this in place, but it does send a pernicious signal to the markets that large and intertwined institutions are special and they will be subject to this new regulatory authority, the resolution authority, that tells investors that the government will step in. This perception, as we well know from our Fannie and Freddie experience, is that this it <coughs> delivers lucrative advantages to these institutions, <coughs> the main one being lower borrowing costs, which of course is the result of investors believing that they will be bailed out if a problem arises. Now, in spite of these Dodd-Frank failings, and I've only listed a few, taxpayers have been told repeatedly that the bill eliminates too big to fail. You've probably heard that yourself on some of the mm -hmm. news shows or read it in newspapers or online. But market participants understand that these institutions will be rescued. If we learn anything from this <coughs> crisis, that is what we learned. And so I think that we can only take away that Dodd-Frank institutionalizes the rescues that we saw during 2008, which were sort of willy-nilly at that point in time. They're, they've now been institutionalized under Dodd-Frank. And so the 1,500 pages of Dodd-Frank verbiage have left us perilously close to where we were before the credit crisis hit. We are still faced with the possibility that wide swaths of the derivatives market will be traded behind the scenes and in the shadows. We have no resolution plan for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The regulators who are hammering out <coughs> the Dodd-Frank machinery are being subjected to immense lobbying pressure. Most significant, we remain threatened by institutions that are too big to manage. This is certainly not where I had hoped we would be four years after the crisis began. But here we are. And what I think it means is that while Glass-Steagall protected Americans for almost 70 years, the flaws in Dodd-Frank almost guarantee that the next crisis will come sooner rather than later. Now, I'm happy to take <coughs> questions. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me just let excuse let ourselves in advance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask the first, and then sure. we'll open it up. How you, the, the way you've ended especially sets the tone for, um, for another crisis uh, looming. 
do you see it looming on the immediate horizon? Do you see uh, do you see difference in behavior, even though it is not necessarily mandated, but uh, in just in in the in the light of recent events uh, in the banking community? And do you think that there is no political will to avoid uh, something like what happened happening again at all? Well, as far as the behavior, I don't really think, I don't see a big difference in behavior among the big institutions. I mean, the small institutions I'll leave out of it because I think that they were innocent bystanders and I think for the most part the smaller banks were not participants uh, in this. They were not, you know, quite at the trough to the degree that the big institutions were. But, you know, what I find shocking, Alex, is, you know, this uh, we've just been through, you know, whatever you want to call it, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. We've got 9% unemployment almost. I mean, you know, many people have been hurt, millions of people thrown out of their homes um, in foreclosure, you know, just so much pain and suffering out there. And yet these big banks swan around Washington throwing mm -hmm. their money around with absolutely no shame. I mean, it's honestly shocking behavior. I would have thought, really, honestly, after 2008 and all of that, you know, however, the, the Fed expands its balance sheet to $2 trillion and, you know, we're bailing out AIG and we're bailing out Citi and we're bailing out all these, you know, um, bad actors, you would think they would go in their hole and be quiet for a while and not show their faces. But no, I mean, they are back in it and we've got to have this, you know, our way and they're lobbying like crazy. So I think that there's no, there's been no change in behavior. If anything, it's a rejection of the idea that they need to change their behavior. Uh, it's and it's so unbelievable to me. I mean, it's from where I sit. And so when they're making their lobbying pitch to Treasury, <coughs> on what basis do they say they should not be... Mistakes prevented? were made. <laughs> no, I had, a, you know, I know this is on the record and everything, and I got it. He didn't say it was off the record, but Jamie Diamond called me last week. He doesn't call me very often, but he called me, and so um, we were talking, and it was just this spiel about mistakes were made, foreclosures, this is foreclosures. Uh, most of the documentation in foreclosures is accurate. Most of these foreclosures were correct. We didn't throw anybody out of their house that, that you know, weren't paying their mortgage, that were paying their mortgage. These were not, you know, on, on purpose. Uh, the, it's complicated. We, you know, just one excuse after another. And I just am astonished by this. This was about your story about... No, it wasn't about anything I wrote, but it was about what it was... He was calling, I think, because... The uh, 50 attorneys general were, are, you know, trying to maybe get some servicing guidelines out there about what companies can and cannot do to these poor people who are in default and foreclosure. And so I think it was in anticipation of something that might be coming out. He wanted me to know that Morgan, J.P. Morgan Chase, that mistakes were made, but very few. And, you know, it was uh, all on the up and up. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a level of denial that is, maybe you have to be at that level of denial to be the CEO of a <laughs> Fortune 500 company, I don't know, but it showed absolutely no indication of, you know, reality. I mean, I know he's in the bubble big time because he doesn't ever have to encounter real people, but, you know, it seems like you would want to have a guy who's running a bank who at least, you know, 
kind of gets the joke about what's going on out there. So I think the denial is pretty, pretty severe, pretty strong. I mean, you know, Goldman Sachs trying to argue that they're market making when they're constructing a security that is designed to fail, that they're going to sell their customers, that they benefit from the fact that it's designed to fail. I mean, who could write, who could make this up? It's like. Richard. Um, is there a I mean, to you, a plausible public policy argument that given the decline of manufacturing in the United States as a share of GDP and the rise of the fire sector, that going forward in the 21st century, the public and the government has to put up with those means which will grow this sector, if not as fast as possible, not impede its growth? Do the you banking sector, you mean? The, the financial fire and, yeah, finance, in all its, in all its charming forms. I would hope that doesn't is not our future, that that is not something we absolutely have to accept. Because I think this is not an industry that necessarily creates value for anyone except itself. <coughs> and maybe its shareholders some of the time, not all of the time. And so, you know, this is not uh, an industry that saves lives, that you know, creates vast numbers of jobs, good jobs for people. This is, there's something about this industry that's really kind of pushing paper around and creating profits out of friction between the participants in the marketplace. It's not, they're not really helping me have a better life a lot of the time, okay? I'm, I don't know, eight times out of ten, nine times out of ten, I don't know what the number is, but you know, on my retirement account, they take a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, pension assets, they take a lot. Hedge funds, 20% off the top. I mean, it's, it just does not strike me as a constructive um, industry. Now, I'm not as well versed in the manufacturing world, so maybe there was, there were elements of that, those same characteristics in manufacturing, but they were making products that people bought. And if people didn't buy them, then they would go out of business. And so there seemed like there was more of a, um, a pact with the consumer there um, than there is with the financial institutions who really, you know, you don't have any choice, really. I mean, you can move your account out of a big bank and put it in a small bank, and I think people are doing that and will continue to. But it's it's really very very similar no matter where you go and it's not constructive it doesn't better your life I would argue now I I'm, I would love to hear the al alternative argument I'm sorry Jamie's not here I'm sure he could give me the argument <laughs> <laughs> what could do you think could it possibly be that wealth the wealth creation can then be deployed to finance the growth well, of the companies well that's the idea right. that's the idea <laughs> let's create jobs let's finance companies so they will hire people but, you know, I see more, you know, Goldman Sachs' profits, not to pick on them, I mean, any one of these banks, it's about trading for their own account. It's about prop trading. It's about their balance sheet and how they use their balance sheet to, you know, take a nickel here, there, everywhere, all around at 360. So it's, yes, they do help raise capital in, you know, times when the market is uh, accommodating. It isn't, it wasn't so accommodating for a while now getting better, but that's such a small piece of the puzzle. I agree that's what the goal is. 
Dick, can I ask you to respond to what Gretchen has said to us? <laughs> well, I uh, I heard I think most of it, and I think it's uh, it's, it's it's very insightful and uh, right on. One omission though that you did not speak to, which uh, I wonder if you want to, is that uh, uh, the Dodd Frank also left regulation of insurance companies to the states. And uh, the third largest welfare queen uh, in this is AIG, where, um, you know, I think that between Pennsylvania and New York, it's been a race to the bottom as to, uh, you know, what, how should they be allowed to move their reserves around and so on. And by the way, I've also seen relatively little reporting of this arcane but potentially very important uh, you know, financial chicanery, and I wonder if you might have a comment about that piece, or did you just think that, that the other three were so much more important? No, I, I am less well informed on insurance. I mean, I covered the AIG bailout very closely, and I've you know <coughs> written about AIG before in 2005 when Hank Greenberg was ousted, and their finite deals with Berkshire and Genry. Um, but I am not as well versed on the regulatory framework. I know that it's statutory and it, that federal, <coughs> there is no federal regulation of it. You know, I have a personal, and it, this is based on sort of my anecdotal experience, believing in some cases that state regulators, because they're closer to the problems, are better than a federal regulator. Now, in this case, it is not probably accurate. But I am not a person who normally would say federal regulation is the answer, mm -hmm. because you see what happened with the OCC and OTS and the Fed um, with the banking system. <coughs> but I absolutely agree that there was no um, resolution and there was no discussion of how this could be <coughs> improved, bolstered, the regulatory framework, um, you know, beefed up around insurance at all. Um, uh, first of all, I did work under Sandy Wall for a few, uh, under Sandy Wall and uh, therefore Jamie Diamond, and he is one mean, driven SOB, <laughs> but he always had Sandy Wall and then his own interests at heart. And, uh, he wasn't uh, very mean on the call, so <laughs> well, he must have been uh, trying very he's hard. A, he's, uh, yeah, he smoothed it out, of course Sandy Wall could making me up. I think about, you know, one of the things that surprised me was how the whole international market uh, uh, joined in the parade. And uh, did, w uh, first of all, did we make them do it? Uh, did they just copy us or were they almost as bad? But uh, however you come out on that, at least some of them have tried. I don't give Greece any credit because I think it's hardly a country. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, we nice are sitting next to the man who is advising the Greek government. <laughs> well, uh, you've got a lot to do because you've got to change the explains it. Well, you've got a lot to learn. <laughs> read the Vanity Fair article. I don't need to read Vanity Fair to learn about it. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, that, that was a minor editorial. <laughs> at least I Britain so too. and uh, uh, some of the countries have taken very serious steps. And the, the people are unhappy, but we don't seem to have done much of anything to make, uh, you know, maybe tighten up uh, overall. And is it the regulators' fault, or is it? Uh, did we just say leave it to Dodd Frank? I mean, take Britain as the example. Everybody's squawking, so it must be some shared responsibility in terms of getting it back together. But here, uh, 
it seems the little people are getting um, screwed and um, the rest go on as always. Um, well, I'd agree. I think that Europe has taken some um, greater steps than we have. Um, I think they're in deeper, you know, trouble than than we are because we bailed out because the Fed blew up its balance sheet to two, <coughs> two trillion or whatever, three, five trillion. But you know, I think that they are facing the music in a <coughs> you know I think more cogent, cold-blooded way than we have. I agree with that. <coughs> Um, I think that if you were to ask me why I think that's going on here, it's because I think we have a series of regulators who are enthralled to the regulated entities that they oversee, starting with the Federal Reserve, starting with Tim Geithner at the New York Fed, mm -hmm. who then went on to be our Treasury Secretary. So I think that they are, <coughs> you know, uh, captured, completely captured, and they, they are in this mindset of the banks must be saved. I mean, if you look at everything that's been done, to resolve or, or you know, uh, get ourselves out of this crisis, it really benefits the banks almost exclusively. When you do have programs for individuals or homeowners or borrowers, they are second thoughts, also ran, riddled with flaws, do not work, and you know, then people are surprised when you find that there are no loan modifications being made under the HAMP program, or not nearly as many as they so it's all about ensuring that the banking system stays afloat and while I understand that we do need a banking system there has to be some give-and-take and there has to be some um, I'll use a very old-fashioned word punishment and we've had none of that mm -hmm. and so here you have this very one-sided approach which is oh, <coughs> we have to throw money at the problem give them everything they need ask no questions we're not going to prosecute anyone we're not going to even, you know, we're, we're going to give you a fine that's a slap on the wrist. But, oh, it must work. The banking system must be protected. There, sorry, right behind you. Um, do you think there was a moment <coughs> when the full scale of the crisis became apparent that the president or maybe other actors could have reframed the public understanding mm -hmm. of these issues in such a way as to create conditions for the passage of a more meaningful, toothy reform bill? So which president do you mean? Um, either. Your, your choice. Yeah. <laughs> I, suppose, I, mean, I suppose President Obama would have been more hospitable to a, a, you know, a hardier bill. Yeah. No, I think President Obama was the person who had the opportunity because it was not his crisis. It was not, you know, his watch. It was not created by him. Uh, I think he had that opportunity. He also is a great communicator, as we all know, and so he would have been able to, I think, frame the debate in a way um, that would be uh, more balanced and less about the banks and more about what um, actual homeowners, borrowers, consumers, workers were going to get out of a um, uh, you know framework <coughs> of response. Um, but I think that the moment that he hired Timothy Geithner mm -hmm. as his Treasury Secretary, uh, we yeah. knew that that was not going to happen because he it was his mess. He did create it. <coughs> and uh, very, very um, hands-on with the banks that his um, Federal Reserve Bank in New York was supposed to oversee. And so by doing that, that one act, Obama really took on the problem of, as his own. And Mr. Geithner has no interest in holding anyone accountable. It's all about protecting the banking system. And so that was, I think, the missed moment. Yes. 
Hi, um, I'm a Midhurst student at the Kennedy School. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should admit, in a prior life, I worked under Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan. That's okay. <laughs> but I've seen the light, and I'm here. He's the least policy. hated banker, according yes. to <laughs> I guess I'm a reformed banker. Um, my question, though, has nothing to do with that. One of the shortcomings of Dodd Frank that I thought I'd hear you mention has to do with the Congress and funding. For example, all of the rules that you talked about, take the SEC, for example, they were authorized significant increases in funding to carry out their duties, such as enhanced regulation of investment advisors to prevent another Madoff. That enhanced funding is completely off the table now. They're even talking about cutting the SEC funding. A lot of the reports that have been generated have come back to Congress for approval. They're being just sat upon or used as opportunities to water down Dodd-Frank, and I could quote examples, but I'd love your thoughts on how you think this is all going to shape out given the changed composition of Congress? Well, I think you're right that it's under assault, um, you know, and uh, certainly the funding of these agencies, uh, the SEC is, seems like it's always, always, you know, um, crying poor and underfunded, and certainly compared to the people that it's overseeing, um, you know, they can't hope to compete, you know, with the high-level lawyers that they come up against in enforcement actions. Um, I guess, you know, we're in this moment of, you know, uh, real, I would not say honest discussion, because it's not honest, but real hardcore discussion, discussions about deficits, about the debt ceiling, about what we should do uh, going forward to make sure we're not, you know, completely beggaring ourselves and our grandchildren and their children. But I don't think we are having an honest discussion about that, and that's the problem to me. I mean, Dodd-Frank, by institutionalizing too big to fail, you know, it essentially, just that alone, if you tried to um, put a number on what those banks would do to our balance sheet, okay? Like, let's say, let's let's not pretend they're government-backed. Let's pr let's say they are. What does that do to our balance sheet? You know. So these are the kinds of discussions that I would have hoped that we would be having. And your to your point, whether or not regulators can even function, you know, in with the jobs that they have to do, uh, given their um, revenues and given given what they're. Um, allotments are from Congress, I think, is a, a very big part of that discussion. Yes. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, the sort of the political calculus, aside from the corporate lobbying influences over over the sort of Frank Dodd, sorry, Dodd Frank um, legislation, and, and perhaps just talk to you know why voters should take a different approach to. Um, you know the decisions that have been made in Washington, and and how you get that message out there, and, and 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 what you do about this sort of going forward. I mean, is this is this a case that everyone's so addicted to debt and where their house price is that they're never going to vote for something that risks you know unsettling a market, or or is this something that you know people should be able to do something about it, and we can do something about it? And if I may add a postscript to what your question is, which is a very good question, why is the Tea Party not? Why is this not part of the Tea Party agenda? This being? Banking reform, mm -hmm. regulation that would put real teeth into <laughs> preventing something like this happening. Again. Because I think essentially they're just, you know, no government is their answer. And so it would be completely at odds with their um, libertarian, you know, um, philosophy to say, let's increase regulation to rein in these big evil banks. You know, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's a, 
that's just too different. To, that's black and white, I think, to them. And big government's worse than big business. You have to choose yeah, for right. him. That's what they think. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm back anyway, to back question. to your question. Okay, political debate. I am so glad I'm not a Washington reporter mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. then I would have to a answer questions like this all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, huh, you know, pocketbook issues, of course, always, you know, the crucial issue. Um, but this is a particularly complicated one, and I think people don't. You know, I'm not saying they can't understand it. I believe it's understandable. It's comprehensible. That's why I do what I do. But I think that the vast majority of voters really don't know what just happened. They know they were robbed. They don't know by who. And so it's very hard for them to, I think, I mean, it's hard for me sometimes. My head is spinning sometimes when I'm right, trying to figure out what's going on with these stories. and, and, and how it's going to end up and what the unintended consequences of this thing and that line and you know that approach are. So it's very it's very hard. It's very complicated. I think that they, you know, to give them some slack. I mean, they have a life. They have a job if they're lucky and a family that's you know worrying them and you know it's it's this is really complicated stuff and I think they'd rather not just uh, they they probably rather not have to think about it or deal with it. That said, I think that our politicians should have framed it, to your point, should have framed it in an understandable <coughs> way, in a cogent way, so that we can have a frank and honest discussion about it. But I just don't think we're even close to that kind of a, a circumstance. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it, it, it does. I, I, I think what I struggle with is, is you know, where next? <laughs> um, I mean, if 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 shoddy legislation is going to end up bringing a next crisis, do we just wait for that and sort it out again, or do we try and do something between now and then? Well, I think that you know, it's this one was so big and so monstrous and so devastating for so many people. The fact that we didn't get it right after this one is pretty disturbing, <laughs> and so I'd really rather not wait for the next one, which will probably be even bigger than this one because these institutions are getting bigger all the time. Um, so personally, I'd rather we have honest discussions, resolve Fannie and Freddie, but you know, these are political third rails, you know, especially Fannie and Freddie in Washington. You and then we'll be over here. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about the uh, agency that uh, Elizabeth Warren is putting up, uh, setting up now, the um, Consumer financial mm -hmm. consumer financial protection. Is there any hope that's going to get through? Or? Well, I think it, it's it, gotten it through, has gotten through. Gotten I mean, God Frank, mm -hmm. you know, requires that it be set up. Is it going to have any legs to it? Well, I think people are going to try to cut its legs out from under mm -hmm. it constantly, um, and so whoever runs it is going to have to be a pretty tough cookie. Um, but it is, you know, in the legislation, and so I think it's going to be a good thing because. One thing that did occur that everybody pretty much agrees occurred during this mania and then the crisis was that there were all kinds of unregulated activities that were going on that fell through the cracks that this, this regulator said, oh, not my department, <coughs> and that regulator said, oh, that's not my department. And so then you have all of a sudden this big <coughs> crisis ballooning and many, many people being hurt by it. So presumably if this thing works the way it's supposed to work, Consumers come first at this agency. They do not come first at the Fed, OTS, OCC. Um, the FDIC to some degree does put consumers, you know, a little bit more than these other ones, but they will be the focus. 
and that alone makes it an improvement on what was there before. Yeah. My question piggybacks off of Andrew's question. It's a different question than one I originally had. As as you mentioned, it's it's really difficult. Almost nobody's read the fifteen hundred pages. It's really difficult to understand what is actually going on. And um, so, my question is: as to become informed consumers, what what are the few the top three concepts that we absolutely must know? And then, as policy students. What should we know? So, so individually, and then when we're recommending policy um, when we graduate, what should we be thinking about? What are the kind of the top three recommendations you would give, given that Dodd Frank doesn't have these, as Matt put it, these teeth? Okay, I don't know about top three. Um, as far as what you should do as a as a consumer is just always read the fine print, read every word, understand it. If you don't understand it, walk away from it. If there's something in here that's buried in there that you say, what's that all about? What's that be? And they don't want to tell you, then walk away. I mean, it's just pretty simple stuff, but a lot of people were kind of rushed into the idea that I want to get this loan, I got this mortgage. It's, you know, so what if it's got 5% fees in it, you know, which add to my, you know, burden immeasurably, you know. Just understand what you're buying, understand what you're investing in, understand what your <coughs> fees associated with your pension fund, your 401k, all of that stuff. It's boring, it's dull, it's, you know, mind-numbing, you have to prop your eyelids up to do it, but it's important <laughs> to do. Because then, if you're educated and informed about that, then you can't be taken advantage of, right? You're making the decisions. As far as what you, about policy recommendations, hmm. I mean, I guess the biggest, broadest, <coughs> overarching policy decision I would like people to take and, and focus on is, you know, making it a, <coughs> taking a holistic approach where you're considering the worker, the shareholder, the CEO, the purchase, the consumer, all of these things, they all work together. You know, it's become this sort of fractured environment where the consumer and, and the, you know, little guy is kind of walked all over and the, the big people just keep getting more power and we need to have more balance, you know. There's just, it's so imbalanced, the system now in favor of <coughs> these, you know, the perpetrators, really, in this last mm -hmm. crisis. And if we could just balance that out, and that's part of why I object to the institutionalization of Dodd-Frank of too big to fail, because you're really, you're rewarding these people for their bad behavior, and you're giving them a taxpayer bailout. I mean, there was no more clear evidence of how stacked the system was against the taxpayer was that we had to pay all these bills for these big, enormous companies that got into trouble by taking too many risks so that they could juice their paychecks. Yes. Um, so my question is about um, uh, particularly that, that point, and um, I'm sympathetic to, to most of your arguments, but I have a little bit of a different interpretation about the systemically important financial institutions and the um, special resolution authority. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with you that um, it's, it's, it's a shame that it didn't address sort of the, the, the concentration of the industry, that's sort of the uh, potential energy for systemic risk, but in the special resolution authority, that it was an attempt to sort of address the kinetic energy or the, the manifestation of a systemic mm -hmm. event in the point where um, uh, under, the, under the special resolution authority, in addition to, you know, um, uh, higher macroprudential standards and stress tests that, that these um, 
systemically important institutions have to take on, that um, that in the event of a of a sy potential systemic event, that these institutions have to be liquidated um, in a way that covers their debt, so that there's not um, so that the overlap doesn't uh, cause uh, sort of a domino effect throughout the system, and in a way that hurts shareholders. And I think in the statute. It, it ultimately says that no taxpayer dollars will go into um, into to propping up these banks again, like we did with TARP. Um, they have to submit sort of the six-month living wills as to how they're going to do that. Um, and now, granted, it's sort of an imperfect mechanism. And given that to to, to sort of trigger that, you need the approval of the Fed, Treasury, and FDIC, which opens the door to sort of the regulatory capture issues. That's my biggest. Um, is, is, is that your gripe? Yeah. With that uh -huh. my biggest gripe with it is with the resolution authority is that it requires the regulators to you know push the button essentially, mm -hmm. and it's all you know fine the way they've worked it out. So this happens, that happens, this happens. But we saw this so many times during the crisis that the regulators were not willing to. I mean, in Lehman they did, but that turned out to be dumb. But AIG, Bear Stearns. <laughs> Wamu, uh, Fannie Freddie, nobody was willing to sort of push that button, and so I just look at past performance and I say, why should that? Why should I not assume that's going to happen again? What would have happened if they had pushed all those buttons? Well, I, my feeling always was that if you if you didn't rescue Bear Stearns, that that would have sent a big fat <coughs> message to everybody, and Bear Stearns was the smallest and was the you know, kind of peripheral player was not the Goldman Sachs. It was not Morgan Stanley. If you had, if they had let Bear Stearns, and they were completely out over their skis, it wasn't like this was a mistakes were made situation. Mm. You know, if you had let them fail, boy, people would have gotten a wake up call, and you would have seen people scrambling to raise capital pretty darn fast. And you know, Dick Fold probably would have been a little bit more assiduous about raising capital for Lehman. Now, maybe there wouldn't have been enough capital in the wide world, right? Maybe, but I think that would have been. I would have loved to see how it played out if Barristers had been allowed to fail. You seem to, to indicate that at least some of these mistakes that were made. I love the passive voice. Uh, were in violation of the law. So I guess my question is, Tim Geithner aside. Why haven't we seen any prosecutions? That is the $64 trillion question. <laughs> We're actually, a colleague and I at the paper are working on that very story. Um, so I'm not going to give away the goods. <laughs> not that there are really any you know, wildly, um, explosively uh, unusual answers to the question. But, um, you know, I think it is the question that everybody wants the answer to. I think that there's a combination of answers. The one I get the most is that these are complex cases. These are paper cases. Juries don't understand these cases. That making, you know, try explaining to a, a jury of, you know, not your peers probably, um, but probably people who maybe don't even balance their checkbook, what a, you know, what the abacus CDO was that Goldman Sachs created, you know, and the short position and the long position and the, you know, mortgages and the CDO and the tranches and the, I mean, you know, okay, so I'm not excusing that as a, I would love to be a prosecutor and try to bring a case like that. There's also a huge fear of failure huge fear of failure among these prosecutors. They don't want to lose cases. 
because it's a big black eye for them. Um, but I think there were definite, there were de <laughs> mistakes were made, decisions were made throughout this, mm -hmm. the years leading up to the crisis that had lead directly to the lack of prosecutions. I'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did it make sense to you that Lehman Brothers was allowed to fail? You know, so if that's a mystery, that's a mystery. <laughs> because it was um, so damaging. Mm -hmm. You know, the commercial paper market was, was just, you know, a shock and people, money market funds, etc. Um, you know, it was again this hairs, my hairs on fire reaction by, you know, Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner. It was really a sense that they didn't understand the gravity of the situation or how to resolve it or and then AIG happens the next day. So, um, I, I, you know, I don't think, we may never understand why that decision was made, but um, it was clearly not, I'm not saying we shouldn't have let some of these banks go. I don't know about Lehman, but having rescued Bear, rescued Fannie, rescued Freddie, whatever, IndyMac, WAMU, uh, not IndyMac, WAMU, uh, you know, I can't remember the order, but the world assumed that Lehman would be rescued. And so when it wasn't, it was just a huge shock to the system. So that obviously was not <coughs> not the right sequence of decisions to make. Yep. Why did Obama pick Geister? Hmm. Wouldn't it be obvious that he was a man of the criminals? So why, I mean, he's an intelligent guy, and he's supposed to be Plus helping us. What? Plus right. he's a tax chief. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why did he pick us? I don't know. I mean, if you get Obama on the phone, ask him. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know the answer. I mean, he, he, uh, I guess, was told that he understands and he was so politically sharp. How could he do that? And why isn't he kicked him out? Why isn't he candid? You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> yes. No, I was just wondering about Geisman. Um, I'm not so sure that it's only about Geisman. I don't know. I don't no, know no, it's he, not only about him. I mean, he's a lightning rod, though. Right. I mean, because I mean, Summers. You could be charitable. Charitable would say. Summers was not so much a man of the banking world as, as Geithner was. He might have been aware of some of the problems that you mentioned in your talk. But what I wonder about was there was this really important meeting. Not a lot of people paid attention to it, but it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It's like in March 2008, Obama is the new president. He calls some of the main... Nine. Nine. sorry. He calls like Jamie Dimon, uh, Lloyd Blankenstein, um, some of the others into his office. We don't get to know what's being said in the office, but everybody expects that Obama is going to read them the riot act. They come out, there's a picture on the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal front page, and they look as if they read Obama in the riot act. Mm -hmm. In other words, that if we want to understand this historical event of the financial crisis and how it was dealt with, we may have to understand also that there was this incredible pressure put on part of the banking world on the president, maybe even, you know, um, 
maybe he was like confronted with some kind of blackmail. I don't know. Well, certainly everyone was very scared. Yeah. And I think that's always very important to bear in mind. And they were afraid the whole banking system in the world was going to collapse. I mean, it was a, it was a real terror. Well, March 2009 was the bottom of the stock market. Um, I mean, I think that uh, that speaks to this point of the banks having this, you know, cock of the walk approach in Washington. But I do think that part of the problem is that Obama does not understand this material. And he's not, a, you know, he's not financially savvy, and he relies upon people to help him make these decisions. Uh, and I would say they're not always the right people. Gretchen, it's always a great pleasure to have you here.